Avengers Assemble. Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host Scott Shelton. Scott, there's really not much to talk about on today's episode, so I thought we could fill the first 20 minutes with idle chatter. So, how are you? How's the family? How's work treating you? Work's treating me great. It let me off uh, early enough on Thursday that I could, you know, just wander around the town a little bit, see, check out the movie theater just to see what was playing. I was like, hmm, okay. It seems like there's an interesting movie out. I'll go just buy a random ticket right at the box office. You know, about, about actually, I mean, two minutes after the movie had started, bought the ticket at the box office, rolled into the theater, and it was just, it was very loud. It was a very loud theater. I don't know what was going on. People were really into it. So it's been it's been nice. My mom's doing well. Friends are doing well. I'm really not sure what anyone did this weekend. Yeah, I know. Seems like we kind of missed the memo a little bit. But I, you know, I too took a stroll down and look at the marquee and. Turns out there was uh, only one movie showing, and uh, it was uh, it was something. But I guess uh, I guess we should just go ahead and talk about it now. And uh, enough with this ruse already. <laughs> well, Scott, longtime listeners to the podcast will know that you and I occasionally have a debate about what movie we're going to review in a given week, and this week was no exception. Well, I wanted to see the John Stamos, Jerry Garcia animated, sure to be classic, Ploey. You advocated for something called Avengers Endgame. And despite a passionate debate, it appears that you have won this round, so I guess we should just get to it. As you no doubt expected, listeners, today we will be reviewing the 22nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the final entry in the Infinity Stone saga that started 11 years ago, Avengers Endgame. Before we get into our review, I want to note for our listeners that since it is nearly impossible to talk about this movie without spoilers, we're taking the gloves off from the very beginning and we will be going full spoilers the entire way. So if you're one of the few people who hasn't seen this movie yet, then just go ahead and skip ahead to the news section and come back to the review after you have. All right, with that out of the way, we get to the movie. Avengers Endgame picks up right where 2018's Avengers Infinity War left off, with half of Earth's population, including T'Challa, Spider-Man, and Doctor Strange, just to name a few, turned to dust when Josh Brolin's big purple baddie Thanos unleashed the snappening after acquiring all six Infinity Stones. The remaining Avengers, including Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man, Chris Evans's Captain America, and Chris Hemsworth's Thor, are still reeling from the events of Infinity War. But when Paul Rudd's Ant-Man escapes the quantum realm and returns to action, the super team devises a plan. With the help of Ant-Man's quantum mobile, they endeavor to go back in time and retrieve the Infinity Stones for themselves, therefore preventing the snapping and bringing back our fallen heroes, all without changing the present. Scott, early numbers are suggesting, and we've already talked about this, that Endgame could end up being the biggest movie of all time. After 11 years, 21 movies, and yes, three hours, did this series finale pack the emotional punch that you and other fans have been hoping for? Or, to quote Shakespeare, is it full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Well, Scott, there was a portion of the movie after, you know, we'll say an hour or two in, I mean, we'll just say an hour, an hour and a half in, where I sat back in my seat and I said, you know, this is really good, but I don't know if it's going to live up to the hype. And then 30 minutes later, there was this particular scene. I'll ju- I mean, we're doing spoilers, so I'm not even why I even yeah, go ahead. It. Yeah, <laughs> put it up there. this, They start the battle with Thanos and Captain America catches Thor's hammer when I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> no, they're doing yeah. it. And from that point on, there was no question about it. This movie lived up to the hype. It packed the emotional punch. I think they hit almost every note perfectly. Scott, this movie was just absolutely incredible, even down to the very last moments of the film when they're tying up, you know, the few loose ends 
from you know post post the battle. Of course, this isn't the last movie we're ever going to get in the MCU, and we're going to see these characters again. But tying up the loose ends that still remained and were worth tying up in this movie, and they just nailed them all, Scott. And that's what I'm just floored about the most. They hit every single emotional note. You felt everything over the course of this movie. You felt the highs. You felt the lows. You felt the highs again. And you felt the lows again. And by the end of it, you just kind of have to lean back in your seat while the beginning of the credits roll and they go through a final montage of the original, you know, six or seven Avengers. And you just kind of think they did it. They just did it. Yeah. You know, I think what you're speaking to is that it's really so hard to talk about that, to like review this as a movie critically. You know, even for me, who is just a casual fan of this universe, because I think it's so much more than a movie, right? It's it's an experience. And, you know, I think while the movie does have some flaws and, you know, we, we won't leave those out, we will, you mm-hmm. know, mention those in our discussion, of course, because I think, you know, it's only fair to to bring up some of the things, you know, maybe some of the rules that it, it sets out and, and some of the things which don't work in, and sure. you know, what is admittedly an overstuffed three hours. But you're right. And if you're thinking about it just from the, the purpose of the movie as being an experience, I can't imagine a more satisfying ending to this saga. And truly, not just the movie itself, but being in the theater, packed theater, obviously every seat was full, sitting there for the three hours, and just experiencing this entire thing, this entire conclusion to something that, while I'm only a casual fan of, you know, I feel, still feel connected to. I've still seen almost all of the movies and was as hype as anyone going into this. It truly is one of those, one of the greatest theater experiences of watching a movie that I've ever had. And I think really at the end of the day, Marvel, they've really earned the right to have a movie that like this, that is, you know, for, for at least for, you know, that last hour or so you're talking about, it's pretty much just pure fan service. And while there are questions and things you might ask and holes that maybe you can pick in certain parts of the plot, I think Marvel has earned the right to make this movie. And truly, this movie exemplifies to me why people go to the movies. And I think everyone is experiencing that same feeling just based on the numbers that it's doing and based on the reactions that I saw of people in the theater. It really is. This is why we go to the movies. And, you know, as much as we can sit on here and, and, you know, shill for indie movies like, you know, last week we talked about Under the Silver Lake. And, you know, some of our favorite movies last year were movies that were were low budget. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Our favorite movie of the year, an independent movie. At the end of the day, you know, going to these big budget superhero movies, action movies, seeing them on the big screen, experiencing, you know, the big screen experience of watching this movie, that's just as much a part of going to the movies. And really, you know, that's what going to the movies were made for, for those Saturday matinee type movies, like going back to Star Wars, Indiana Jones, stuff like that. I have a feeling this movie for people of our generation is going to be, you know, what some of those first Star Wars movies or maybe the first Indiana Jones movies were like for our parents generation. It's so it's so hard to even compare it to. Right. Because, yes, like like Star Wars Episode six and even maybe like the last crusade for Indiana Jones were movies that, you know, of course, had two predecessors each. And there was a lot of hype building around the conclusion of the trilogy for Star Wars and, you know, just the next Indiana Jones experience. Right. But this is 11 years, 21 movies. There's nothing that's been done like this before. And I'm not going to say there's nothing that's ever going to be done like this again. I mean, Marvel might do this again in, yeah. 20, you know, in 21 movies time, but there will never I really strongly believe this. And, and maybe this is a recency bias and I'll be proven wrong, but I just don't think there will ever be an experience like this one again. And that sounds like hyperbole and exaggeration, but 
I mean, will the will the domestic box office ever make three hundred and fifty million in one weekend again? Let alone with, with one movie. I mean, that's absolutely insane. And, and to think that I, you know, I saw this movie three times before we recorded the podcast. I went at midnight on Friday night to an absolutely packed in an absolutely packed theater that got out at three thirty a.m. And there was another showing after that that I mean, I have no idea whether that one was sold out or, or how sold out that one was. But just the fact that people turned up all hours of the day, sold out theaters. The experience is something else. Like I've never cheered in a movie before. Like personally, I'm more of a reserved person, even though I appreciate it when people do cheer. And my Saturday night showing was like the loudest I've ever heard a theater before. And it's just insane. It's just crazy. Like watch this, watch this movie on the biggest screen you can find with the most people you can pack into a theater. It's such an incredible experience just, just to be able to be there in the moment and watching it, but also because of what's happening on screen. It's totally engaging. It's enthralling. Yes, there are flaws, especially, I mean, and I, and I think about them every single time I go back and, and rewatch it and they're worth talking about it, but those flaws are so dramatically overshadowed by everything else. And, and yes, part of it is that 11 years of baggage coming along with the movie. And, and to your point, it, I mean, it more than earned the right to have this movie. They, I mean, they earned the, the right to make this movie and then to have done what they did with this movie is just all the more impressive and, you know, we talked about just like off air just before the show about how, you know, maybe there are some critics who will complain about how much money this movie is making because it just, you know, influences studios to go for these big blockbuster movies and, and doesn't necessarily support the smaller independent films with that have maybe something more to say, so to speak. But but you know what? I don't have a problem with that. I mean, this movie is absolutely incredible. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, there are other movies, smaller films that I will go to bat for. You know, I have done it on this podcast in the past, and I'm sure that I will do it in the future. But when you can create a universe that ties up, or at least for this first part of this universe that ties up in this way, I'm going to go to bat for you. And I think that this is an absolutely incredible finale to this first era in the MCU. And it's an incredible experience. And, I, and it's just impossible for me to deny that. Yeah. And I mean, you know, a lot of criticism of, you know, big budget movies comes from the idea that, you know, they're just empty spectacles. You know, it's all just blow them up action. There's no real humanity or emotion in these, you know, that that they're all. It's a sound and light show. It's they're a all sound and light right. Show. They're all Michael yeah. Bay movies, basically. Endgame is not that. I mean, it is the polar opposite of that, right? Because like you said, you feel every single emotion during this movie. And it's true. Like sometimes in the same minute of the movie, mm-hmm. I felt like three or four different emotions. I did shed some tears at the end when Iron Man died. Absolutely. But, you know, I was laughing. I was on the edge of my seat. You know, there were some goosebump moments. Like really, truly the full gambit of emotions are on display in this movie. So, you know, anyone who is criticizing you know, criticizing the movie as being that is just hasn't seen the movie. And furthermore, anyone who can't appreciate what Marvel has accomplished here really just doesn't understand movies. Like, you know, I I hate to say that, but like when you look at the universe that they carefully created from 2008, you know, starting with that post-credit scene in Iron Man with Nick Fury, you know, coming to Iron Man and saying, we're going to start the Avengers. You know, they had this whole thing in mind. I mean, I'm not going to say every single, you know, thing was laid out on paper but like but most of it had to be i mean like the it it's it's really hard to deny i think when you go back and think about what every how all these movies tie together that they didn't have at least at some level some reference for you know all the way back from the first couple of movies to this movie right they just tie it together too well to be able to retrospectively go back and engineer it. yeah and that's the thing like it's one thing to have that idea but then you have to execute it 
and they absolutely executed it. And they finished it off with a movie that literally I've seen like every single fan, every single person who has invested in the Marvel universe that I've seen is in love with this movie. And I think like, I, I just can't really compare it to any movie that we've experienced in our lifetime, except for, you know, perhaps the force awakens of just in terms of the amount of hype, the amount of pressure that was put on the directors. And then they pulled it off in the end with a movie that sort of satisfied everyone. But even then, I don't think that that stacks up to, you know, what Marvel has done here with, again, the 21 movies over 11 years. It's just a staggering accomplishment. Yeah, I, I agree with that point. I think The Force Awakens, for at least for our generation, I think probably is the closest comparison point as of right now. Although I do think, to your point, and, and I'm not saying that you didn't just say this, but the idea that The Force Awakens, I mean, there are plenty of very legitimate complaints about the originality of Force Awakens, even though I thought it was perfectly fine and didn't, I didn't personally have a problem with it. And I thought that the main selling point of The Force Awakens were the new characters, less the, you know, the plot of the movie, which mm-hmm. is why I ultimately didn't have a problem with it. But for Endgame, I don't think you can question the originality of it. I mean, okay, no, it's not the first heist movie of all time, but but the, you know, there's no previous movie in the MCU, uh, or I mean, I can't even think of a comic book movie that would be comparable at all to what they accomplished here. I mean, if anything, they're 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 almost they've almost crammed together three stories into one movie, pushed it all together. But you know, in spite of the you know the little flaws and the little holes that you can point out here and there, for the most part, have pulled off a story that seems almost inf- unfathomable to to, to craft. In my opinion, and I'm, and I'm just I'm, again, I just can't I feel like I'm repeating myself. I'm just so impressed with what they were able to accomplish and how they were able to wrap it up. Yeah, and you know, before we quickly before we move into specifics, I think you know we've kind of been talking abstractly about you know they've accomplished this, they've done that, but you know, a couple of people who I think are probably going to go unsung in this. I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about Kevin Feige and you talk about the actors uh, yep. in terms of what they pulled off, but I think Joe and Anthony Russo who, you know, obviously directed what I probably consider now to be four of the five best MCU movies with five or six best MCU movies with this movie, with Infinity War, and with the last two Captain America movies. Um, I think they came into this franchise not having really, like, you know, they were mainly known for doing community, like the, t- the TV series. Like that was their biggest yep. credit to date um, when they came into Captain America Winter Soldier. And they really did not miss a beat, not miss a beat. And for me, for someone who appreciates more, you know, and I, I say this about every big franchise, but who appreciates more of the human element, the emotional connection, I think that the movies that they have crafted in particular have really tapped into that. And that's the reason why we're willing to sit there for three hours and why even though there's like no action really during the first hour, even hour and a half of this movie, you're still on the edge of your seat because you care about those characters. And I think the Russo brothers, you know, coming into this franchise and really with those movies, the, all the movies that they've directed, they've had a lot of plates to balance. Even those last two Captain America movies were almost like Avenger type movies because you had a lot of different characters uh, moving in and out. I mean, certainly, certainly Civil War. I mean, you yeah. could argue Winter Soldier is a little bit more on the, it is a, a little bit more of a traditional solo film. But I mean, Civil War is basically an Avengers movie in my book. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, they probably will go unsung a little bit, but I think what they have done should not go unsung because, you know, to to direct a movie with this many moving parts and characters and storylines and really for for the most part, you know, there are still some some questions, obviously, but make everything make sense and really, I think, create the hottest mess that they could possibly create out of uh, all of this uh, is pretty amazing. 
Absolutely. No, you mentioned it. I think Kevin Feige is the the brain behind it all, but working so closely and in partnership with the Russo brothers for these, you know, set piece films in the in the MCU over the last five years, four or five years, whatever it has been. I mean, I guess Winter Soldier is even a little bit further back than that. You know, you're kidding yourself if you don't think Kevin Feige already doesn't have a you know another five to seven year plan ahead of this already. I think you know as as much as the Russo brothers may go unsung, I think. Even as much as praise as Kevin Feige gets, he's probably he probably isn't getting enough praise for what he what he's able to accomplish. Because I think it's just hard to put into terms what he's been able to do. Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, to your point, like we already know what a lot of the movies and the next phase of the MCU are going to be. So I mean, he he obviously does have his plan set in motion, and I think that you know, Endgame will only forward that plan. Yep, for sure. Now, why don't we uh, get into some of the more specifics? There's so much movie to talk about um, that, you know, it's hard to know where to begin. But we usually begin with the performances. And, you know, so there are so many performances. We simply do not have the time to talk about every single one. You know, so so we'll talk about them in conglomeration. But I think one performance, which we do need to talk about individually, is the one by Robert Downey Jr., who, you know, was the very first person, very first hero in the MCU back in that 2008 Iron Man and has been there every step of the way, whether it's, you know, in Captain America, Civil War and all of the Avengers movies and Spider-Man Homecoming. Um, He's just been this constant presence. He really has been the leader of the Avengers uh, in this first phase. There's always that potential of people coming back in this universe. But I think this is this movie is pretty safe to say that was is the swan song for Tony Stark for Iron Man as he uh, he died snapping away Thanos and all of his his uh, cronies. But Scott, what what do you have to say about this performance by this final performance by Robert Downey Jr.? And, you know, on our next episode, we'll talk a little bit more about the MCU as a whole in this first stage. But, you know, even looking back to that first Iron Man, what what do you have to say about what Robert Downey Jr. has done in this universe over the last 11 years? Yeah, I mean, Robert Downey Jr., again, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the historical aspect because we are going to dive so deep into that in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But to, to think about the faith that, you know, Marvel Studios put in him to launch this franchise, maybe having hopes and dreams about what it would become, but having no no real guarantee or promise that it would become that and picking an actor like Robert Downey Jr., who's truly on the ropes in terms of his career and where he was at the time in terms of his you know addiction and, and how he was. I mean, I don't want to call him taboo, but he was not a hot commodity in Hollywood. He was kind of he was not the person that you would stake your 11 year franchise on like 11 year plan. Put put that on him like at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are a few actors probably worthy of that investment based on what they've already done. And Robert Downey Jr. at the time certainly did not warrant that faith. But they, you know, took a leap of faith. They put their trust in him. And what they were able to launch, it, it not only was it an incredible performance way back in Iron Man 1, but I think he's only gotten better over time. He's, you know, refined and mastered not only, you know, the, the, the persona of Tony Stark, but also the character of Iron Man and what that represents. His, you know, his smooth confidence, his arrogance that just has his lovable arrogance, which is not something that I say very often, uh, is just so endearing. His character is so endearing. And even, you know, even in the moments where, he makes mistakes. You still feel for him. You realize that he's human. And, you know, there are, you know, Iron, I don't think Iron Man 2 is a is that good of a movie. In fact, it, it could even be, you know, one of the worst three or four movies in the MCU. Mm-hmm. But I think Iron Man 2 shows you exactly how human 
and, and, it, and it's only through those sort of that that development that you can get the full appreciation of the final moments of Endgame and where he comes from. You know, early on in Endgame, you get the scene where he, you know, he's rescued by Captain or he and Nebula are rescued by Captain Marvel, brought back to Earth. And then what we what we have left is basically a, an argument between Tony and Cap where he yells at them, tells them that he was right and then passes out on the floor, basically, you know, from exhaustion and you know dehydration. And, you know, of course, he, he's like very thin and, and looks very ragged in, in those early scenes before they go and, you know, and kill Thanos for the first time. And then by the end, you know, you, you know, his humanity and you know that. You know, he, he, you know, at least initially he chooses his family over trying to reset the universe. But, you know, that he has that heart inside of him, you know, to reference that final, you know, one of the final shots in the movie about the original arc reactor that says proof that Tony Stark has a heart. And I think you get that proof in this movie and through this performance. You know, I did see a tweet before I watched this movie that you know, Robert Downey Jr. is worthy of an Oscar, though there's no way he'll ever get the credit he deserves because it's a superhero movie. I'm not sure if I'd go that far, but I think that his performance in the MCU and a multitude of others as well, but particularly his performance has probably often flown under the radar in terms of the quality, especially in some of the more recent movies. But in this movie in particular, he takes center stage for large chunks of it. And he absolutely deserves that center stage. And it's a reminder of he has been the driving force behind the development of the MCU. And this movie is the perfect moment for him to pass the torch on to future members. We don't know yet who those future members are going to be. But one thing is for certain, this franchise would not be what it was without Iron Man, without Robert Downey Jr. And the people who who take the torch from him. We'll never forget him. Yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of the Oscar conversation, I, I, I'm in agreement that he never will get an Oscar nomination just because that's the way the Academy is. But, I mean, I think he does deserve at least a nomination, not only for this performance. I mean, you, you could give him a nomination, I think, for this performance alone. But, you know, talking about the whole body of work idea as well, uh, you know, going back to that first Iron Man, really what he has done is absolutely worthy of at least a nomination, I think. Uh, because more so than anybody, he has really defined the Marvel Universe. And like I said, he's been the leader uh, of the Avengers. When we went into this movie, I said to a uh, fr- friend of the pod, Danny Kunkel, who I was with, that the only way I'm going to cry at the end of this is if Tony Stark, Iron Man, dies. And sure enough, he did. And, you know, it was such a satisfying moment because of that callback to the first movie, right? You know, when he says, I am Iron Man. And I think it really, uh, you know, shows that in this movie, you know, we, we of course we have known all along that Tony Stark is sort of a, self, a bit narcissistic. You know, use the word arrogant. I think it is fair, but really that movie, this movie doesn't lean that heavily into that side of Tony Stark. I think this movie is more about uh, is a more introspective version of Tony Stark and a more you know tender version of Tony Stark that we get from the very beginning. We see this in scenes with his daughter um, that he's had. It's the five years later version of Tony Stark. I mean, right. I think. That he, you, we, know, we don't see that development on screen, but we can understand it from the very second that we get Tony Stark in the five after the five years later happens. You, you know, of course, he has that really touching moment with his daughter to start out. And then you can see how much has changed for Tony and the perspective that he has. And and as as uh, as Pepper put it in the movie, how lucky he got in the snap. You know, he and, and two, he's persistent about the fact that, you know, if we're going to do this, if we're going to go back in time. We have to keep the future the exact way that it is because he has his family now and he's done with putting his work before his family. You know, he he, he wants to uh, 
you know, keep what he has because he did get lucky. And, you know, ultimately, while he's unable to do that, you know, the the last moments with Pepper are very touching as well. When she says, we're going to be fine. I think a, a really nice job by Gwyneth Paltrow in that scene of the way that she keeps it together until he dies and then sort of breaks down feels very, uh, you know, authentic. But, you know, another scene where we see this side of Tony Stark is this maybe my favorite scene in the movie, certainly one of my favorite scenes, uh, when he meets his dad, um, when they, you know, they go back into the, I guess was supposed to be the Captain America, the first Captain America timeline, and they're getting the Tesseract, and he, you know, encounters his father, Howard Stark, and there's just a, a really lovely scene that goes on between the two of them. Of course, Howard Stark doesn't know that that's his son, uh, but they have a conversation about family. And Robert Downey Jr. just does some really nice things in this scene. I really like when they're in the elevator and Howard Stark is, you know, talking and he's spreading his pearls of wisdom that, you know, you you just know that Tony grew up on. And we just see while Tony's, you know, he's trying to keep it together because he's not playing, because he's not, you know, supposed to let on that he is, Howard's son, he like cracks a, a, you know, a sly smile, like at a couple of things that um, Howard is saying, you know, and you just see that knowing smile that Robert Downey Jr. Um, gives the character. And it's just a really nice touch to the scene. And, you know, he's so eager to talk to his dad and to tell him about, you know, the fact that he has a daughter now. And it's just a really wonderful scene that I think shows how far Tony has come from that, you know, ego centered guy we saw in the first movie, still lovable, still lovable. But um, you know, he's become a family man. He's become, you know, someone that, he, you know, his father would be proud of. And that's why I think in the end, it's okay. We're okay with him going the way that he does. And, you know, it, it's, it's funny to say, because like at the end of Infinity War, you know, there was that moment where, uh, you know, you think, you kind of think Tony's going to die. Uh, and then of course, Dr. Strange gives up the time stone to save him. But I remember thinking when I watched Infinity War, I was like, okay, if he has to go here, uh, I'm fine with it. Like, I'm okay if this is where he dies. But now, you know, now that he didn't die and this is the way he got to go out, I, I now say see that I would have been very upset with if he had died in Infinity War because the, you know, right into the sunset that they give him in this movie could not be more appropriate. Absolutely agree. I think that I, I also had hesitations after Infinity War about whether or not I thought they missed the right chance to give Tony his farewell. Uh, to give Robert Downey Jr. his farewell in this franchise. And uh, you know what? I was wrong. Marvel was right. This was the better way to do it. Uh, what better way to go out than one of the ways you came into into this world with, you know, saying, of course, I am Iron Man before snapping Thanos and all of his minions away. I think that there's no better crescendo for Iron Man in this franchise for Robert Downey Jr. If he is going to if he isn't going to have the the exit that Captain America gets to have. This is this is his exit, and it was beautiful. That it was. But Scott, why don't we talk about many of the other, or so, at least some of the other performers in this movie, because there are so many. Um, yeah. You know, Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, um, Mark Ruffalo are the kind of people who were there, you know, from that first Avengers movie. Um, and some of them, you know, obviously sort of bid adieu here. I mean, obviously we know we'll be seeing more of Scarlett Johansson in the Black Widow standalone movie, but she does die here and it appears to be pretty final at when when she and uh, a Hawkeye have to go to retrieve the Soul Stone and mm-hmm. one of them has to sacrifice themselves and there's this there's a, a great scene where they, you know, fight over who it's going to be and ultimately 
Natasha is the one who has to go. But of course, Captain America, too, while he doesn't die, he does sort of get to ride off into the sunset after, you know, he he goes to return all of the Infinity Stones and decides to come back as an old man. And he spends, you know, a lot of his uh, time when he goes back with Peggy. Um, and, you know, we get, of course, the lovely scene of them dancing and the callback to the first Captain America. Um, so some of these characters we're never going to see again. And so I just want to know, Scott, how do you feel about the way that, you know, Chris Evans and Scarlett Johansson in particular sort of signed off from the franchise? And are there any other performances? I mean, I'm sure there are that stood out to you in at least in terms of all of the Avengers. Yeah, absolutely. I think that Scarlett Johansson, I think that that was the one death, the one death or one departure from the franchise that it didn't catch me by surprise once the movie was going because I it's I think it's telegraphed or it. You get some fear rise within you when, of course, when Clint and uh, when Black Widow and Clint are going to Vormir, you're like, oh, man, one of them's going to die. Who's going to be? And, and it makes sense for it to be Black Widow because, of course, Clint has his family to go to come back to. And so it, it was deeply saddening. I think that was that was the first point in the movie that I cried. And for me, it was a, it was it was it felt the right way to go too, right. Like when you're talking about how these two have such a special relationship that none of us understand and because they haven't told us what really what that relationship is. They've only implied it. They've only teased it to us. They, I mean, even in this movie, they tease it, right? We're a long way from Budapest. And so it's, it, it's a really, it, it felt like such a great scene to have these two fight over the right to sacrifice themselves to save the universe. And it, it's exactly the kind of characters that they've developed over the course of the franchise. And that being said, Scott, I'm a little bit more skeptical whether or not you know Black Widow is is truly dead and dead and buried in this franchise, you know you get the line from Hulk at the end of the movie, where he says, "You know, Cap, I really tried to bring them back when I when I snapped." And you know what? I'm going to be really honest, Scott. We don't know whether they're still snapped out of existence or not. We don't know if the original Gamora and Black Widow are really weren't recovered because if they were recovered, they'd still be on Vormir. So. I'm just going to say we don't know whether they're alive or dead. I think that they probably are dead, and I think it's a much better story if they are. Yeah. But I think there's a little bit more ambiguity than, than we're giving them credit for about whether or not yeah. they're dead. They're dead. So, I mean, who knows if it truly is the sign-off from the franchise for Scarlett Johansson. She's such a memorable character. You know, def- Definitely the Avenger, or at least of the original Avengers, that I'm most disappointed that we haven't got a standalone movie. Of course, we're going to get that standalone movie. It's unclear what exactly that standalone movie is going to be, but I'm glad that we will get Scarlett Johansson back in this role again. But in terms of her send-off, in terms of the forward-looking MCU, I think it was a great send-off. I loved that scene between her and Jeremy Renner. It was it was a fitting, frustrating way for her to exit the franchise, but exactly true to the character that she has uh, fostered and engineered over the course of, you know, the movies that she's been a part of in the MCU. As for Chris Evans, you know, he's someone who's never really been one of my preferred Avengers. He's always the the holier than thou version of, uh, you know, Captain America, which is just, you know, the nature of his character, right? But this mo- this movie and, and some of to some degree Infinity War as well, but particularly in this movie, and I think this movie makes me appreciate and love this character in an entirely new way. And that's one of the things that I found most remarkable about this film, taking Avengers who I didn't necessarily dislike, but ones that I was a little bit more ambivalent about and really brought them to a new level. I mean, of course, we get 
Captain America and Nebula throughout this entire film. We only get Scarlet Witch for a little bit, but even in the time that each of these characters gets on screen, I felt like I was I had a new appreciation for them and I liked them a lot more by the end of it. And when you're talking about a movie that's wrapping up, you know, the 21 movies that came before it, I'm not necessarily expecting to gain a new appreciation for three of the 50 characters in this mm-hmm. franchise, right? And I think that's one of the things that makes this movie so special for me. And Chris Evans in this movie, I think he really did it well. He did it serv- he did it great service. You know, in during the time heist when he faced off against himself, I thought that scene was amazing. Yeah, that's such a great Lo- scene. I yeah, I absolutely love that scene and I appreciated that they, you know, of course, this is necessary for the time aspect of the movie, but I appreciated that not, you know, no one of these scenes dwells too long or lingers too long and overstays its welcome. It's just the right amount, uh, whether you call it fan service, whether you call it narrative development, maybe a little bit of both. But I think that the pacing of it is just spot on. And there is no more spine tingling of a moment for me across all three times that I've watched the movie so far when he catches that hammer for the first time. And everyone in the audience loses their mind. And then again, shortly after that, when you have all the Avengers that have come back and then he catches the hammer again and says Avengers assemble. Absolutely incredible. Uh, And for me, he shares the spotlight with Tony, maybe more than I even expected him to because of his incredible performance. Yeah, no, I agree in the sense that I'm also not someone who's super high on Captain America and you know, I, I also said before the movie, I was like, you know, if somebody if one of the old Avengers has to go, you know, he's the one that I would kind of want it to be just because I just don't find the character's backstory that interesting. I think it's just, you know, somewhat somewhat by the nature of the character, it's a little bit boring, but he gets some great moments here. I think you're spot on that scene where he fights himself is great. Obviously, the ending to his story, too, despite my misgivings about the character, I certainly felt something, you know, seeing him reunited with Peggy, seeing them get to have that dance, um, you know, that they were denied at the end of the first Captain America movie. And, you know, that's one of those things that I kind of you, you definitely feel like that's coming, uh, especially, you know, when when that when he and Tony do go back and he sees Peggy for the first time uh, again. I kind of felt like that was coming, but that didn't make it any more satis- any less satisfying in the end, you know, when we do get to see them dancing. So, um, yes, he's been huge for this franchise. He's been a part of some of the best movies, you know, as much as I, again, my misgivings about the character, I think, you know, Winter Soldier, Civil War, again, two of my favorite movies. And, you know, they both bear his name in the title. So, uh, you know, you, you can't take that away from him either. So, I, yeah, I mean. I think he rode off into the sunset in a very honorable fashion. And um, I definitely appreciate the part that he played in this universe. Talking about some of the other heroes, I think, you know, Chris Hemsworth as Thor is one of my favorite characters uh, in the Avengers. I don't know. I like, so I think fat Thor was kind of a fun gag for a little bit. And, you know, he does get a nice scene with uh, Rene Russo playing his mom, but I think maybe Fat Thor wore out his welcome a little bit by the end, and I, I kind of just wanted the old Thor back a little bit. Uh, not that there's you know a huge difference between the character, but I don't know. It just felt like a, a bit that kind of went on for a little bit too long. But I'm excited. I was fine for it, and I wish they went after kind of when the fight started, mm-hmm. and he of course transformed into not necessarily thin Thor, but more aggressive and time to stop messing around Thor. <laughs> I wish that kind of after that, in the final moments where you get the hit, you know, with his conversation with Valkyrie. And then of course him being on board the Quinjet, uh, I forget the name of the ship of 
Quill ship. Yeah. Which I should remember. But I, I wish that they had dropped the gag after the fight and not brought it back. But then they brought it back for his conversation with Valkyrie. And I'm like, yeah, you could have done without it. But I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to hit him too hard for that one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as I was saying, I'm excited that, uh, you know, it looks like he's going to be around for a little bit longer. At least he's going to be around for Guardians of the Galaxy 3. Because, like you said, he does board that ship with all the guardians at the end. The as the as guardians of the galaxy, which is a yeah. line that I really love. Yeah. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, I, I did I did like it, but also I was feeling so many things at that moment that I was like, "Stop trying to make me laugh! I'm not going to laugh right now." Yeah, but no, I'm excited to see more of him. I think everyone in the cast, you know, plays their part. Again, it speaks to the power of this franchise that so mi- that there have been so many well crafted characters. Um, over the years and speaks to why we're so invested because it's not just one or two people it's not just tony or captain america or thor it's all of them even the smaller characters like you know you said you're not a huge scarlet witch fan i i want to know more about this character I, I really like elizabeth olsen and i loved getting to see scarlet witch sort of get her moment to land some blows on thanos in the final battle 100 percent. no i think that's exactly yeah. what i'm saying this movie brought all those characters that i was more ambivalent about and made me care about them in ways that i never expected to i just found scarlet witch to kind of be an annoying character in ultron and then again, and to a lesser extent, but again, her relationship with Vision was never one that I found that interesting in, in Civil mm-hmm. War and the other relevant movies. But by the time that we get to this moment and when she comes back and she's face to face with Thanos, I was rooting for her and now I'm on board with her. And I think that that is the magic of this movie, able to suck me into characters that I know I've said this twice already, but I was ambivalent about and then care about them in entirely new ways which the last movie in a franchise, I'd never expect that to happen. Yeah. And, and, you know, another character who I think is, you know, a bit divisive, at least from some of the things that I've seen, you know, among fans is, uh, but, but is honestly one of my favorites is Scott Lang's Ant-Man played by Paul Rudd. Of course, I think that I really like this character. I think, you know, there are so many wisecracking characters in this franchise. It sometimes gets a little bit old, particularly, I think when you're talking about the gardens of the galaxy, but I feel like Paul Rudd, is the and you know his performance in the character of Scott Lang employs humor in the best possible places and he makes you laugh uh, and really just keeps things grounded I think amidst all of the serious goings on which I think you know it is is something that is desperately needed um, in any superhero franchise you know talk about the DCEU maybe a character like Ant-Man is something that has been a little bit lacking from that. But I really like Paul Rudd in this performance. I think him being in this movie was one thing which maybe gives it a bit of a uh, step leg up for me over Infinity War, though, of course, I still really like Infinity War. And then, you know, Spider-Man, obviously, Tom Holland gets some nice moments with Tony uh, in Tony's final moments. And I really also really like Benedict Cumberbatch as Doctor Strange. You know, to confess, like this, the the standalone Doctor Strange movie is one of the couple MCU movies that I haven't seen, but I want to watch it more than ever now after seeing both Infinity War and Endgame because of Benedict Cumberbatch. Even though he's you know in this movie for only a very short time, you know he gets some really good moments. I like you know when he's talking to Tony and Tony says you know tell me this is the one ending or whatever, and he's like I can't tell you that or it won't happen. And then of course you know the whole build up to Iron Man's death. You know, we see him there on the battlefield and he holds up the one one finger to signify that this is the one good ending and that, you know, you kind of understand now it all comes full circle why he had to save Tony at the end of uh, Infinity War. And so I really like Benedict Cumberbatch in this role. And, you know, we'll talk about maybe next week about the future of the MCU. 
But I feel like this is a character that I could see being maybe the next Iron Man, being the guy who is going to sort of lead the Avengers in this next phase of the MCU. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm, you know, I thought that Doctor Strange was a was a was a good, not great standalone movie. I was excited for to see him interact with the other Avengers, and we got a flavor of that in Thor Ragnarok before you know the full dose of it in Infinity War. I think that his chemistry is in his real and his as a character's relationship to the rest of the Avengers is one that, of course, was very tentatively explored in Infinity War, and of course had minimal opportunity to be explored in Endgame as he only appears in you know the final act of the movie. But going forward, he's definitely the he definitely ha- I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch as an actor has the chops to take over a lead role, and I think his character is well positioned to take over that role as well. And I think that the combination of him and maybe Chadwick Boseman's Black Panther. And then, you know, with maybe an advisory role, uh, you know, as usual from someone like Nick Fury, if he hangs around with someone like Hawkeye, if he hangs around with someone like even Captain America, like old Captain America, if he does hang around, you know, wouldn't be surprised to see a cameo performance. And then, of course, maybe the most obvious one as an advisor role would be, of course, Professor Hulk. So the the new version of the Hulk that we get in this movie. So these are all things. Captain Marvel as well, I think, is, you know, could be right on the forefront. Yeah, you know, I I wondered that myself, and I was surprised how little. Of course, she's so OP that if she's just hanging around the movie, she's gonna just crush right. everything. So th- I actually thought they did a nice job of like, uh, you know, the whole like, oh, I, you know, there are other planets experiencing the same thing. So basically, sort of taking her out of the picture. Although, of course, mm-hmm. I wanted to see more of Brie Larson in this movie. I think yeah. you're right. Like, she's so powerful that it probably would not have been as much of a struggle for them had she been around. Although, you know, in the end. She does, you know, try to fight Thanos and he uses the power stone to kind of kick her butt. Yeah, I still think that in a, in a longer, more drawn out one on one duel, I think she's got that one in the bag pretty easily, yeah. even with the infinity stones on Thanos' side. But we'll never, well, I mean, we'll never know. But regardless, I think that, I think the way, like the way that she's been treated in this movie, I wonder how much of a leadership role she'll take in the Avengers. I think that she'll always be there to support them. And, and that's, I'm just interested to see what the next kind of uh, the next phase, of course, phase four starting next year, uh, what, what what that will bring for her. And, you know, maybe it'll be a few years before we have a good sense of that, before we get another team up movie with a chance to see her again, or maybe it'll be her sequel. It, it's hard to say right now, but I think that the, the way she was treated in this movie, which I agree was probably the right way made me question whether or not she would take on that leadership role in the next phase. But for me, I think the most obvious candidates right now are Dr. Strange and Black Panther. Yeah, I agree with that definitely. And I think it's it's also, you know, talking about T'Challa, I think it's it's telling that although, you know, we hear Falcon on the radio first, the first person that we see of the people who got snapped returning to the battlefield is T'Challa. Um so yeah. maybe that's symbolic there uh, of what you're talking about. But yeah, so I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's the the Avengers and obviously, you know, the a few there's there's some that we haven't talked about, Mark Ruffalo, obviously he's great in everything. And I think this is no exception. But now I think we should talk about. Uh, also, just briefly, I want to say Don Cheadle, I think probably often flying under the radar, yeah. of course, the controversy around Terrence Howard leaving uh, the Iron Man franchise, of course, the MCU in general. Uh, we didn't know at the time that it would become what it, what it has become. But I think Don Cheadle has done such an admirable, admirable job filling those shoes and making this character his own. And I, you know, on the multiple you know, rewatches that I've done now, I think I just, I have a growing appreciation for him in, in this role in a role that I've often uh, not cared too much about and often thought he's just like, oh, he's just an interesting little sidekick for Iron Man. 
but he's grown on me a lot and I really like Don Cheadle. Yeah, and Karen Gillan too as Nebula. You know, you yep. talked about how you uh, sort of took to Nebula in a way maybe we haven't in the past movies. And I think because that's because the movie gives her more time to shine. You know, I was sort of a, a little uh, confused at the it, at first when they go back in time to retrieve the Infinity Stones. And of course, they split up into different teams. And like, what is it like? Hulk, Iron Man, Captain America, Ant-Man are all on the same team. I'm like, don't you think they should have divided this up better? And meanwhile, like War Machine and Nebula are like, a team all in and of their in and of themselves. And so I was like, this is kind of weird, but at the same time, you know, to your point, I think it gives us more time to spend with those characters who maybe have flown a little bit under the radar in the past. And I think you're right. Don Cheadle and Karen Gillan both do a really nice job. Absolutely. Okay. So now I think before we, you know, talk about maybe some of our favorite moments from the movie, let's talk about Josh Brolin as Thanos, you know, many people calling him the best villain in the MCU. Certainly he has landed blows on these Avengers that, no other villain has um, over the 22 movies. Uh, but he bites the dust, no pun intended here, um, at the end of this movie. Uh, but before he goes, Scott, what did you think about, uh, you know, the, the the end of Thanos's reign and what Josh Brolin brought to this character? Yeah, I think that I was one of the, maybe one of the few people out there who wasn't as impressed with this Thanos character, not necessarily Josh Brolin's performance, because I think it's excellent, but this Thanos character in Infinity War. After a couple of rewatches, I rewatched it twice in the last couple of months leading into Endgame. The character and what I think that they do with the character has grown on me, and I've liked it more and more. And I think Endgame really cemented that. I mean, of course, he's the most fleshed out and thereby, I think, kind of obviously the most or like the best villain that we've seen in the MCU, with maybe the exception of Killmonger. Although I think that he's that Thanos has like probably surpassed Killmonger at this point. And I think Josh Brolin's such a core part of it. He has the gravitas for this role. There, there is no one else that I could think of when I see Thanos anymore besides Josh Brolin. And there's no other voice that I could possibly ever hear besides Josh Brolin's in this role. And so he's really ma- managed to make this role his own. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated about Endgame was the delivery of those sort of, sort of pearl moments. You mentioned it with Howard, but I think that, of course, the trailers, especially for Infinity War, are littered with these like really quotable sayings from Thanos that are like very meta, very high level. I think in Infinity War, it's like, you don't know what it's like to lose, to feel so strongly that you're right, but to fail all the same, something like that. And I think that that's one of those lines that was delivered and cut so well into, a, into an Infinity War trailer that really didn't land as strongly in the movie but i say, but i'll say that for this movie for endgame the one thanos line that we get in the trailer which is the one about how you know you couldn't live with your own failure and where did that bring you back to me is delivered so well in this movie and i think a couple other lines as well the gravitas of those lines and the impact of those lines are so much more effective for me than they were in infinity war And because that character is built up in a way in the trailers and is sold to you as this person who delivers these kinds of lines, not only just being a menacing villain, but a a villain with a purpose and with a message, I think that he's that this movie cements that element of his character. And I thought that was one of the big areas of the that the character was missing from Infinity War. And so I think that this movie perfected this character and definitely raised him to the heights of being for me, what is the best villain? of the MCU. And, and without Josh Brolin, I don't know if this character would be that. Yeah, I agree. And I like that also that we get to see sort of an angrier side to Thanos, at least in this final battle, because in that first movie, you know, he was pretty like calm, you know, to use his phrase, 
he, I am, he, you know, he always says I am inevitable. And I think that we really got the sense of that in the first movie because, you know, he, there didn't seem to be much doubt that, you know, he was going to achieve his goal. And that was why perhaps he seemed so formidable in that first movie, because, you know, he didn't, he didn't really see the Avengers as much of a threat. Uh, but I like, you know, this final uh, battle when he starts off confident, but as things start to escalate, um, you know, we, we see some of the anger that is within him come out and maybe explain more of his motivation of why he wants to kill, you know, what, what, why he wants this balance, why he wants to wipe out half of everyone, or maybe, you know, isn't even satisfied with wiping out half of everyone. Um, yeah, I think I think you really get that feeling, and and that's impressed upon you mm-hmm. in the you know after the battle has started, but before all of the Avengers have assembled, where he talks about you know I'm going to reduce this planet to its to its final atoms and bring it back, and then a little bit later he says you know in all my time of conquering and destroying, I've never it's never been personal, but I'm going to really enjoy destroying mm-hmm. this planet. He's like so frustrated and to your point angry, and, and I think that that was an element of the character that I think you're right was missing. And I think it was probably a good thing that it was missing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, having rewatched infinity war multiple times, that aspect of the character resonates more with me. It's like, it's not, it's nothing personal. In fact, I, he even, t- you know, in infinity war, he's talking to iron man. He's like, and I, and I, I, I admire you and, and you know, and it's nothing, it's nothing personal things like that. And that's an element of the character. That I think is really interesting. And when you pair it with what you get in this movie and in end game, I think it really completes that character in my mind. And that's the side of Thanos that I was expecting to see in, in infinity war maybe and didn't get. And then I realized, okay, now I have the holistic picture of who this, of who this guy is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, uh, you know, I think I'm happy. We, we got a villain that matches the, uh, you know, epic nature of this movie. You know, I always say that superhero movies are only as good as their villains. And I think, Thanos is a major reason why these last two movies have hit so hard. But now, Scott, I think, you know, we've talked about the plot a fair amount, but I think maybe now is the time to, you know, point out, we don't have to spend much time on it, but point out a couple of things maybe that don't work as well for us. Because I think maybe the plot is probably where, uh, you know, those holes you can probably find the easiest. Um, So, you know, it, it, what are a couple of things that jump out to you maybe where if we're looking at this, you know, from a critical perspective as a movie, you know, putting the awe-inspiring experience of it aside that you, you know, you have to say maybe they could have done a little bit of a better job with. Yeah, absolutely. At first, before I do talk about a couple of plot criticisms that I do have, I want to start by saying my biggest fear going into this movie is that they would just totally bungle and lose me with like the time travel and the quantum realm aspect, which was talk about things that are inevitable. I mean, we knew that 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 was going to have to have something to do with this movie with how they set it up in Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp. I will say, Scott, one of the things that I appreciated most is how they did handle the quantum realm and how they did handle time travel, because I think that they just dropped all the things that were confusing and either didn't make sense or were just plain nonsensical, even to take it a step further than didn't make sense. And they explain time travel in a way that honestly, I think is a, like a lot more sensible than how these other movies that they were referencing and making fun of often handle time. Like the, the idea that it's your future, um, not your past and how you can't change the present when it's your future uh, is something that actually I think made a lot more sense. And I'm not saying that all other movies need to adopt this focus on time travel in the future, but I think it, it worked really well for what this franchise is doing. And so 
what my biggest fear was alleviated from a plot perspective in that sense. God, I don't know whether you agree or disagree with that, but for me, I thought the time travel element as hand wavy and, and as magical as it might've come off when Tony just one night was like, Oh, why don't we just do an inverted yeah. uh, Mo- Mo- Mobius sphere or whatever. I that was, a mo- that was one of the moments for me, for sure that I kind yeah, of, no, it's, it's super, there are several moments that are super hand wavy. That's one of them. There are a couple others as well, but I think that the way that they then approach and then handle time travel after that sort of hand waviness of that moment I think it's something that I really appreciate and think they did a really good job because I thought that that could have very easily kind of gotten gotten out of control and slipped out of their fingers a little bit. But then to to then level the criticism where it's deserved, maybe I think that that element is very hand wavy, right? Like he's just, you know, we, maybe he's been working on this for five years. We don't know the, the way the movie crafts the story. It seems like after his visit of, you know, after he gets visited by Captain America, by, um, by Black Widow and by Ant-Man, he just starts thinking about time travel again. And then the first night he like solves the puzzle instantly. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to say whether or not that's something that he had been working on for five years already. But the way that the that it sets it up in the movie, it seems like he just got lucky. And it's, you know, that's, of course, you know, someone's, you know, a, as a universe that's probably been trying to solve time travel for at least 100 years by that point and understand the quantum realm, he gets it in one night, feels a little bit hand wavy. this is an element of time travel, but not the time travel itself where I don't understand how they got the Quinjet back from time travel. I also don't understand the pit, like the pin particles, how Karen, how Nebula was able to uh, the, the, the other timeline Nebula was able to uh, quantum realm back to the present and then also leave pin particles for Thanos to to teleport through the time or the, I don't know the top, the the quantum tunnel. I think is what they're calling it. I think there was some, there's some stuff I didn't understand about about that element. But I, maybe I'll turn things over to you because I, I I'm not sure if you have a bigger things to complain about than in the plot than that. I mean, those were my main moments, particularly that you know moment with Tony. I think they do a decent job with the time travel uh, stuff. I mean, it, it's not that I don't understand what they're saying. Like I understand that uh, you know they're going they're going to go back in the past, but they're not going to change the future. But just that concept is hard to wrap your mind around. Uh, you know, how exactly, if you go back and change, if, if you go back and, and stop Thanos from getting the Infinity Sense, if you stop the snap, how exactly are you going to keep the same present that you have, but just, you know, all these other people happen to be present? Yeah, and, and so, like, you so know, just to jump in there, I think that the, I mean, the idea yeah. of it is that it's a multiverse, right? Like that, that's ultimately yeah. what it is. And so the, 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 the moment where I think they mess up with this is actually at the very end with cap it like to me, as much as I like the emotional note that the ending hits, I don't understand how cap gets back to the present. If he's not teleporting through the quantum tunnel. Right. So that's the moment that I point to where they've like not followed their own rules because the rules they lay out, mm-hmm. I think make a lot of sense. Basically when you go back in time, you're not really going back in time. Cause you, you're it's time travel in the sense of you're going to through the quantum realm to a different like universe essentially. And that universe is just like an off. There's like all these different off branches of true. It, it's like a little bit confusing and not easy or, and doesn't probably make sense to try to explain it on a pot in a podcast. But the idea of it is, is that when you travel through time in the quantum realm, what you're really doing is you're just going to a different universe. that's very similar to the one that you yeah. started in. Right. Which explains like why we have like the double nebulas and like stuff like that. Exactly. Exactly. Gamora coming back. Precisely. But, and then, and then uh, they mess it up in the end when they have cap go back through the quantum right. realm, but then 
not transport back, even if he had been old, right? Like, I think he should have appeared back in in the quantum tunnel and they broke their own rules. And so that's the part that I don't understand. And so I don't know if that means I just didn't understand how it was working the entire time, which would make me question the entire movie or they just, I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom. They messed up, but like, I think they just met, they just broke, they messed up their own rules uh, with the, with the cap ending. And I think some of my other questions maybe will just be answered by stuff that happens in the future. For example, what's going to happen now with Loki since he like got the briefcase when they went back in the previous timeline. I mean, a lot of people think that that's maybe the Loki TV series is going to focus on that. But mm-hmm. I just wonder how some of the stuff that they changed in the past timelines, you know, how is that going to play out in the future? Um, you know, even Peter Quill getting his teeth kicked in or what? I mean, I, that probably won't have any uh, impact or whatever. I but love that scene. Oh, it, was, it was kind of funny, you know, how we see, you know, the starting scene from the first Guardians of the Galaxy and then Peter Quill just getting... Uh, cleaned out but yeah so i mean i guess some of my questions will probably be answered in the future but you know again ultimately i think you kind of just forget about those questions in the moment because it's clear that the movie doesn't want you to spend much time on them and that they want you to you know they they go straight for the heart not not for the head um and they you know at the beginning i went for the head uh and you know they want you to just this to be more of a emotional experience that hits you on a gut level than something that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about. So, uh, yeah, that, that, I think that's, I think that's mostly true. Although I, I don't want to overemphasize too much that they're going for the heart rather than the head because there, yeah. I mean, there is a plan. I want to, I mean, Kevin Feige has a plan. Yes. I, my, yeah. I, I'm definitely in the camp that the Loki, you know, getting, getting the Tesseract that, I mean, that's, what's going to be, uh, that's what the Loki TV series. I'm pretty sure that that has to be what it's going to be about. Mm-hmm. My biggest question, and I think that just is putting it back in the frame of what you're talking about here. My biggest question is that if the timeline does work that way, if we can get Captain America all the way back in, to to the present, even if he doesn't use the quantum tunnel, what, I mean, I'm really confused. I'm I'm, I'm in your but what does that mean for me? I'm I'm rationalizing it all by saying, oh, they messed up with Cap, and that they're not going to break the rules anywhere else because if they start breaking the rules everywhere else then like I it's going to get it's going to be so confusing and none of it's going to make any sense. Yeah. So I think that that's the way that I'm processing it. it. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I think the Loki that has the Tesseract is in a, is in a different universe. And that's where that's where I mean, there's a potential for that's where a lot of these TV series are going to be mm-hmm. potentially. We're not sure yet, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. That that's where the Loki TV series is going to be. I'm going to be disappointed if Loki shows back up in like this quote unquote, like, primary universe of the mcu we know randomly with the tesseract it's, it's going to be very strange i'm not going to understand it and i'm going to have some more problems with it if that happens but for me that's how i'm rationalizing it yeah and, and i think that makes sense that's that's about as much sense as you can make of it i think at this point but okay scott so i think now we'll we'll move into uh our extended wrap-up stage i think here because i think i have a couple questions for you uh you know in our wrap-up before we get to our scores i think that first of all you know we always talk about what's our favorite scene or moment i think this movie has so much movie that you know if you want to mention several scenes or moments you know ones that we've already mentioned or ones that we haven't mentioned um then that will be fine but also you know in terms of Seeing the if you can see the bigger picture at this point, which I think, you know, you've seen it three times now, you probably can. Where does the movie stack up ultimately overall in the MCU? 
Yeah, sure. You know, I, I'm think I think of this movie, and you talk about a movie in three acts. Like we, I think that's often a, a framework that uh, that is used to, or at least structurally applied to a lot of movies. And I think it fits perfectly for this one. So my favorite scene from Act One, one that we haven't talked about but has gotten a lot of coverage, which I've really appreciated, is I believe it's Joe Russo has a very yeah. small role in this movie in this kind of support group that Captain America is one of the leaders of that we get right after the five years later. Uh, cut the cut to five years later and he's ta- you know he's talking about how difficult life has been post the snap post thanos and he has this conversation about how he you know he recently went on a date with another guy for the first time and they cried at, at dinner like he you know, his hit the guy he was on a date with cried before the salad got there he cried when dessert got there but you know what he is going he's pushing far and gonna see him again and you get the encouragement from captain america and i think that's just that's the soft that's one of the soft moments in this movie that I just appreciate so much. Of course, it's getting a lot of hype for being the first openly uh, gay character in the MCU, even if it is a super minor mm-hmm. character and about how, and it's getting a lot of coverage for how representation is so important as the MCU expands uh, its reach into all aspects of inclusivity. Of course, we got that last year with, with black Panther, which was maybe the culmination of several uh, people of color being incorporated into the MCU, maybe starting with Falcon. And then of course, Nick Fury as well. But I, I like to see this this reach and this trend towards inclusivity, and I think that's a perfect moment, even if it's a small one, uh, that I hope that they can expand on going forward as they include other characters and new characters and beyond into the MCU. As for a kind of a favorite scene from Act Two, which I think of as kind of the time heist, right? I think that there's you you get the the touching moment of seeing that original shot from the first Avengers movie with all of them hovering right after they initiate the time heist but and which is an which is a nice moment but for me it's got to be a scene that we've already talked about and that's the uh captain america versus captain america moment where they fight each other and then cap ultimately gets the upper i should, I should say cap they're both cap the primary timeline cap it, you know finally gets the upper hand uses the mind stone to to paw or basically to subdue the alternate timeline captain america and then in a callback or and, and then to for a recurring gag that had been happening several times over the course of this thread of the plot says that that is America's uh-huh. ass, which I just thought was absolutely hilarious. It's a great, great scene. Uh, I also liked, you know, I mentioned, I liked the scene with Quill. Uh, it's just such a nice callback to one of the things that I love so much about that first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, which is the music and how uh, uh, infectious it, it can be. And then of course you have Rhodey and Nebula saying, Oh, this guy's uh-huh. an idiot. And she's like, yes. uh-huh. <laughs> and then clocks him. And then to me, it's so hard to pick a favorite scene. There are three or uh, three moments, which I think we've talked about all of them already from the final act of the movie. But after having seen it three times now, I can definitively say that the Avengers assemble moment is, is the best moment in the movie altogether. And act three for me, uh, it's just, it's a special, special thing. And I, I don't, I don't know if this scene would stop being spine tingling to me, even at a 50th viewing at this point, it still has the exact same effect every single time I see it. And I think and I hope that it's always going to have that same effect because it's just such a special moment. Scott, I've saw this movie three times. I only needed one viewing to know this. This is by far and away the best movie in the MCU for me. Maybe that'll change over time. Maybe there's a recency bias. But this just this movie for me is just next level special. It made me feel things that I hadn't felt at least together in any MCU movie. And, you know, I know some critics have called it, you know, pure crass fan service for me. It's fan service, but in no in no way is it crass. I think it really speaks to and leans on the work that they've done for eleven years. And th- I mean, this is the pinnacle. This is it. I, I don't know if another 
MCU movie uh, will ever surpass it. I, I don't think it really will either. To you know, to start with that uh, question, I agree. I think this is the best uh, you know movie in the MCU, and you know, I'm not somebody who's connected to the MCU as much as you uh, are, but. I mean, I, I have a feeling our what we went through emotionally in this movie was more or less the same. Um, and I think that just speaks to, you know, the impact of what they uh, have done here that I think even if you haven't seen a lot of the movies, I mean, I, I do think you have to see like Infinity War to know what's going on here. But even if you haven't seen a lot of the movies at all, I think just from going to see this in a theater and like getting a contact high off of everyone else's reactions, <laughs> you can really appreciate, uh, you know, the emotional wallop that this movie packs. So, yeah, best movie in the MCU for me. I think, you know, up until this point for me, it was the first Iron Man. So I think, you know, there's a nice bookend there with what I think are the two best movies in the MCU. They started things out on an incredibly strong note and they finished it on an even stronger one. You know, talking about favorite scenes and moments. Yeah, of course, we've talked about a lot of the the great ones. Iron Man, Iron Man's death and the I am Iron Man callback to the first movie um, was just priceless. Also, uh, you know, uh, uh, another moment that calls back to uh, the first Iron Man that we haven't mentioned, but that also, you know, got me, even though I thought I was going to be uh, what just ar- around the time when I thought I was OK, uh, I thought I'd recovered was, uh, you know, we get a scene after Tony's or at Tony's funeral with Happy and uh, Morgan, Tony's daughter, sitting on his porch. And, you know, he says to her, like, are you hungry? You want something to eat? What do you want to eat? And she says, cheeseburgers. Um, which, of course, is, is calling back to Iron Man saying that he wants an American cheeseburger after he uh, gets back from the Middle East uh, in that first movie. So, I mean, just the, those great nostalgia moments throughout. Obviously, you know, I've mentioned the Tony and Howard Stark scene. Really nice job um, by John Slattery in that scene as Howard Stark. And, you know, Thor and his mom, all of these sort of like nostalgic moments, they all worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, action scenes, when you put aside that final battle, the Captain America show, showdown is great. Uh, and I also think that uh, talking about humorous scenes, one that we haven't mentioned was in the diner with Hulk and Ant-Man um, and the kids who want to take photos with Hulk, but not with Ant-Man until, and, and, and Bruce keeps encouraging them to take photos with Ant-Man to the point where it just becomes pain, painfully awkward. And the kids are actually saying, no, we actually do not want to take photos with him. Yeah. And, um, and Paul was like, take the me out. Yeah, <laughs> that the escalation of the scene was really funny. And yeah, I think it's all on display in this movie, as you can see by the, you know, the variety of scenes that we've picked. You you would be uh, fooling yourself if you didn't uh, take the time, take the three hours. It is three hours, but honestly, the three hours could not have gone by quicker because I think you don't want it to end, right? You know that there's uh, some amount of finality that is coming with the end of this movie. And with that, I think... You don't want it to end. So even though it is three hours, I think I, I said to you, Scott, this, I determined it was the longest movie that I've ever seen in theaters. And as much distaste as I have for long movies, the three hours didn't bother me in this one. They earned it. And every step of the way, every all three hours of this movie deliver in a different but equally satisfying way. I never thought I heard you say it, Scott. Three hours <laughs> in the movie theater and you're not complaining about it. Yeah, well, you know, save this one, put it in the in the Hall of Fame because I won't say it very often probably but uh you know this is this is a rare example of uh, again i think a movie that earns it and now i think let's talk about how much it earns it scott what's your score out of 10 
Yeah, I got to say one thing. The only thing, the only last thing I want to say before I do deliver a score yeah. that we haven't explicitly mentioned yet, but the 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 scale of this movie, the epicness of this movie, and the final battle in particular, I don't think there's been a movie that's that has been made that rivals the epic nature of the final fight since Lord of the Rings. It delivers in a different way. To be fair, it's 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 a different kind of final fight because it's it's much it's much more abbreviated than the final fight in Lord of the Rings. But for me, the epic nature and the and the way that it's able to be so many different things in one movie. It's a heist movie. It's a war movie. It's you know an emotional like drama. It, it just manages to capture so many different genres in one. I mean, of course, the the MCU I think among a lot of big fans are, is known to being having a lot of different genres. It's why people don't get tired of seeing MCU movies. It's why we're not burnt out on seeing you know two or three movies a year it's because they manage to be pretty different genres regularly. And you can see that even as a like this movie is a microcosm for that. And I think it's another thing that makes this movie so special, Scott. You know, I I really considered hard whether i could give this movie a 10 i'm coming just short of a 10 i think that there are there are enough flaws and enough enough question marks with it where it hasn't quite earned the 10 for me but a 9.7 will do yeah you know to go back to my earlier comment i think as an experience absolutely it's a 10 out of 10 but it's i a think 20 it's a 20 out of 10 in yeah terms of experience. you have to counterbalance that i think with again some of the shortcomings that we have talked about you know as few as there are you know, they can't be completely ignored. And so, yeah, I'm with you. I'm at a 9.3, just a little bit lower than you. But I think that the thing to take away is not those scores. But again, the fact that as an experience, it probably even exceeds a, te- a 10 out of 10. And they, they pulled it off. They did it. They did it. I can't quote my letterbox review. I used too strong a language, <laughs> but uh, they did it. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. That's our review of Avengers Endgame. Uh, But, you know, if you want more MCU talk, never fear, because like we have said, we will be back next week uh, with an episode that looks back on the MCU um, as as it's uh, transpired so far and then looks ahead at what's to come next. Uh, But what's to come next for us on this episode is the news. Uh, So stay tuned after this break. We'll be back to talk the latest news and trailers. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, before we finish things off in our Avengers episode today, we have a few non-Marvel, non-MCU, uh, for the most part, related news items, uh, as well as a couple of new trailers to talk. Uh, starting with the news, uh, Sony has won the bidding war for Once Upon a One More Time. Uh, sorry, I had to read that very carefully because it's a very confusing <laughs> title. But it's a jukebox musical uh, which is going to be set to the songs of Britney Spears, which is something that personally I'm excited about. I think jukebox musicals can be really fun. I, I feel like they should do them for a lot more artists. And I think Britney Spears could be an artist who will lend herself well to this sort of a musical. What are your thoughts on this project? I think you're right. I think that Britney Spears' music will lend itself well. I'm not particularly well-versed in her discography, but I think that you know you could definitely pick out the greatest hits, and what you'll get is something that I'm sure can smash together a pretty fun time, even if it ultimately isn't that memorable. But it seemed like the bidding war was pretty competitive, so I think what we're going to get is something that's compelling because it was a bidding war after all, and, and Sony won it. Hopefully the script is at least on a higher level than Mamma Mia, either one of the movies. <laughs> Yeah, that's an interesting point. In Leo DiCaprio news, um, in addition to starring in the new Lil Dicky music video, 
Um, Leah, Leah, Is that true? Oh my god! You haven't seen it yet? Oh man, it's it's about climate change. So of course, that's why Leo wanted to be a part of it. But the song is actually really trash and didn't even make me laugh. Which Little Dicky songs are usually good for a laugh. But it's worth watching one time just to see all of the celebrity cameos that are in it. But in other Leo DiCaprio news, uh, he will be starring in Guillermo del Toro's next movie, Nightmare Alley. And we learned that he turned down a couple of projects, including, I think, from Paul Thomas Anderson and Alejandro Giannari, too, um, in order to take this uh, next movie from the you know best best director winner from 2017. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think it's a it's a fascinating movie. This give, this makes me feel like Leo's going back to his Shutter Island days with some sort of horror thriller movie, which I you know I like Shutter Island. I think it's an underrated DiCaprio movie. It's a very interestingly crafted film, and Guillermo, we know that Guillermo del Toro is really good at crafting these sort of you know horror thriller types of movies. Of course, a shape you know Shape of Water wasn't that. But we've seen him do it in the past and, you know, what he's going to be doing in terms of it, in terms of producing Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark that's coming out later this year. I think this could be a really, a really great, it doesn't surprise me, right? But I find it so interesting that he's turning down projects from Paul Thomas Anderson and, you know, Inyari too, both the people who he's worked with in the past. And I think it just shows that Leo really likes to work with all the best directors, not just one or two, with the exception of Scorsese, who he clearly has a really close relationship with. Not sure when his next Scorsese movie will be, but in the meantime, he's hitting all the all the great the all the greatest directors and uh, it was uh, Guillermo del Toro's turn. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, you know, Leo, he picks his projects well, so of course this is gonna be something to watch. Also, Ben Affleck uh, has been slated to star and also direct uh, a World War II movie called Ghost Army. Scott, my understanding of this movie is that, from the plot at least, it's going to be kind of an unconventional story about how people use, how this group of uh, soldiers use like inflatable tanks and props and stuff to like trick the Germans into thinking their bases in certain places, which reminds me in a way of, of Argo and the way that he told perhaps a, a less known story but kind of a, a fun story set in a wartime period. Uh, so I'm, I'm kind of excited to see what this movie holds. Me as well. I'm, this is the direction that, you know, as, as Affleck left the DCEU, this is the direction that I was hoping that he would head in. His last movie, Live in Night or Live by Night, I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, Live by Night. Live by Night, total trash. That movie was really bad. And yeah. that was, a, you know, a huge disappointment coming off his role as, Batman, I can't remember exactly when that movie came out and where it fit between uh, Batman versus Superman and Justice League. But I totally agree. This definitely calls back to, you know, a movie that he that won Best Picture in Argo. And I think that this could be his opportunity to reignite the spark that I think a lot of people were feeling just just, you know, five, six, seven years ago, right after Argo. And also, I think, did he direct the town or was he did he just star in the town? I believe he did direct it. Yeah, well, I, you know, th- those types of movies, I want him to get back to, you know, if he's not going to be Batman, if he's going to be spending 100% of his time out- outside of, of that role, then I want him to get back to something like this, because I want I want to feel that about Ben Affleck that I felt when I watched a movie like Argo. And, you know, even though I didn't necessarily like it, I want it to be something like Gone Girl. Uh, it, it's like it's definitely like that. Yeah, he, he did direct the town. So it, mm-hmm. it's those types of movies that, that I want him to be making. And Ghost Army totally feels like a step in that direction. Yeah, I agreed on all fronts. I love Argo and The Town. Um, so if this movie is anything in the vein of those movies, then I'm sure I'm going to 
uh, be a big fan. So yeah, feeling good about this. But Scott, we couldn't stay away from the MCU for the entire news section. Uh, we did get some more news on the WandaVision series that we talked about last time out. Uh, that is going to be dropping on Disney+. Plus. Uh, specifically, we learned that it's going to be six hours long, and perhaps the most surprising detail is that it's going to be set in the 1950s. You know, I'm excited for this series. I talked about last time how maybe of all the Marvel series, it's the one I'm most excited for, but uh, this is kind of an intriguing tidbit that I guess suggests that we will be seeing some more time travel involved, but uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, you know, going into watching Endgame and having seen this news before I saw it, I'm like... I'm going to be so pissed if this is like a spoiler for Endgame. And it's not. It's not a spoiler um, yeah. for the for the movie. I won't go anymore for those of you who maybe skip forward to the news section. But that's not a spoiler for the movie. I'm curious what this is going to be, what the setup is going to be. It's not clear to me what that is. You know, the, I think this series isn't coming out until next year. So I wonder if one of the movies that we're going to get next year in the MCU might set this TV show up, especially since Kevin Feige has stated very explicitly that these Disney Plus TV shows and, you know, anthology TV shows are going to be very interwoven into the future of the MCU. So we'll see if this maybe gets set up in a future movie. But the news that this is six hours long feels right to me. That's, you know, eight 40 minute episodes or, you know, six one hour episodes, which feels about the right length for these TV shows and and is exactly what I expected. And, you know, especially after going off what I said earlier in our in-game review, I'm much more on board with Scarlet Witch as a character. And I'm excited to see what this TV show uh, has 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 in store for us. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, six hours, I think, is kind of should be sort of the hallmark for TV series nowadays. I think shows we're we're seeing now that shows that try to go longer than really a 10 episode season uh, kind of wear out their welcome or just can't really sustain the quality uh, of, you know, maybe if they had left things at 10 episodes um, and, you know, we see a decline in quality when they try to extend things. So, uh, you know, I'm glad to see this. And also, you know, I'm sure. Elizabeth Olsen, Paul Bettany probably have a lot of other projects that they're working on. Uh, so, you know, I'm not surprised to see this maybe come down on the shorter end just by a little bit, though. Yeah. And I also misspoke. It's it would be eight 45 minute episodes, not 40 minute episodes. Math. OK, uh, we also got some uh, updates on the uh Kerry Fukunaga directed James Bond 25. Of course, we still don't have a title for it yet. It will probably involve the words live or die or never in some way <laughs> or tomorrow. Or, or, or golden. Yeah, it's just called Bond 25 for now. What uh, if they just kept that as the title? That'd be so funny. Uh, that would that would be quite a troll. But we got uh, a full cast list. It's a lot of returning um, folks in the cast, including, of course, Ray Fiennes as M., uh, Leia Sedu coming back as Madeline Swan, uh, Ben Wishaw as Q, uh, Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter. You know, a, a lot of the old favorites, but among the new additions to the cast, uh, Lashana Lynch of Captain Marvel fame, uh, Ana de Armas from one of your favorites, Scott Bl- Blade Runner 2049, and of course, Rami Malek, who has confirmed now as the villain in this movie. Uh, Scott, did this news get you any more or less hyped for this next James Bond entry? I think that th- this announcement... <laughs> Unfortunately, the way that they hyped up the announcement itself uh, was probably a disservice to to themselves because ultimately this announcement didn't do too much for me. It doesn't like none of these returning characters surprised me. I think we already knew most of these characters were returning. Of course, I like that Lashana Lynch and Anna Darmus are in this movie, but I don't know what their role is going to be. I don't know if they're going to have five minutes on screen. I don't know if they're going to have half an hour on screen. So for me, it, it's still I'm still in a wait and see approach. My I, I'm I'm happy that Remy Malik is in this movie as much as I didn't necessarily. As much as I have ire for the fact that he won Best Actor, I think that 
he will ultimately probably do a good job in this role. I got to admit, though, having watched the first season of Killing Eve recently, my biggest disappointment is that Jodie Comer is not the villain in this movie. Oh, man. Yeah. No, now that you mention it, not even something that came to my mind, but she would have been fantastic. But it's going to it's got to happen at some point. I mean, same, especially because she is British. So. At the same time, I feel like she would have just been playing the same character she plays on Killing Eve, maybe. So maybe it's I don't care, best, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah, true. I don't I mean, care. She can play the same character. They wouldn't can even call her see. villain now. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't mind to, to see that in a Bond context. But yeah, for now, it's Rami Malek. And I agree. I think he'll do a decent job with it. Final bit of news before we talk some trailers. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead has been cast in a new Netflix thriller called Kate. Um, we don't know much about this, but it seems like she's going to play some sort of assassin in this movie. Uh, Scott, I have enjoyed some of her work in the past. We're going to talk about a new movie uh, in a second that she's going to be in later this year. Um, does this news get you excited? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. I think that Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, you, you know, I know that you're even a bigger fan of her than I am. So I'll, I'll let you uh, I'll let you have your moment in the spotlight to talk about it. But this is absolutely uh, this absolutely gets me excited. I, you know, assassin thrillers are right up my genre alley. And so and it'll marry Elizabeth Winstead is a great actress and, you know, on the rise, I'd say. So to, to have this coming out, I don't know if it's coming out later this year, if it's coming out next year, but I'll be looking forward to it. And when we do get a release date, it'll definitely be going on my calendar. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I've enjoyed her and stuff like, I mean, Scott Pilgrim, obviously she has a huge role, but some coming of age movies too, some smaller roles like Perks of Being a Wallflower and uh, and Spectacular Now. She appears in both of those. Of course, I love both of those movies. And I think, you know, she's someone who has deserved to get leading roles for a while. And maybe this is, you know, one step on her uh, her quest to do that, uh, to get more le- leading roles. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on this one as well. But now let's talk some trailers before we conclude things, Scott. Um, I'll just turn this first one over to you because the new Detective Pikachu footage uh, its this sort of montage with a bunch of different uh, Pokemon that are going to be in the movie obviously doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but I probably meant the world to you. Now, I thought this was cool. I, I love the variety of footage and trailers we're getting. We didn't talk about the kind of the, the new footage that we got in the previous week on, on the podcast with the different cat like casting calls, but they were like riffing on casting calls for Pokemon, which I thought was super cute. And, and you know, this is just you know, a reminder in, in the wake of Endgame, this movie is coming out in two weeks and I can't wait for it. Scott. I think I feel pretty confident in saying this is going to be the best video game ad- adaptation film of all time. And I, now it's just a matter for me wait, you know, I can't wait to see it. Let's just see how good it is. Yeah. I mean, in spite of what I say, I am, I do think this will be an enjoyable movie, and I am looking forward to seeing it in a couple of weeks when it comes out. Even if you know this footage, even even if seeing all these Pokemon doesn't really get me, you know, d- doesn't hit me in any sort of feels because I don't even really know anything about them. But uh, mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a fun movie. And the early reviews that I'm seeing, you know, are kind of suggesting that you don't have to have that sort of basis in order to enjoy this movie, at least on some level. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And this movie, it, again, I know I've said this before in the podcast, but because this movie isn't tackling like pokemon red right right? it's getting a different story that most people aren't going to know about in detective pikachu and you know because it's a video game that you know mostly was has been like far more you know far more played in japan than it has been in the u.s and and obviously people like the rpg mainline pokemon games more than games like detective pikachu i think that because it's not trying to you know, deliver that story that, you know, the anime and the TV, the TV show, I should say, or yeah, it was an anime, uh, and the anime delivered back when we were kids. I think that the lack of accessibility or like pre or like preloaded knowledge of the story is actually going to help and facilitate uh, 
people like you who are less engaged with the franchise to come in, see it, enjoy it with people who do have that more of that strong background and maybe know or recognize the Pokemon more quickly than than you will. I think that'll allow a shared experience of enjoyment in the movie. And so now let's just let's just see what it's like. Yeah, I'm with you. Something else I want to see what it's like uh, is the new Ang Lee movie, which uh, dropped its first trailer this uh, week. It played before Endgame. Uh, the movie is called Gemini Man. Uh, it stars Will Smith, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, to name just a couple. And it looks like it's going to be pretty cool, Scott. Uh, you know, this is a kind of a there's been some hype around this movie for a little while. And I think people have been waiting on this trailer for a bit. Uh, but the first signs at least were encouraging to me. And obviously, Ang Lee, very visionary director. And while I'm not the biggest Will Smith fan, it does look like a, at least a more interesting role than he typically plays nowadays. Yeah, you know, I think I know we, we've talked about this on the news section of the podcast at least a little while ago when when we talked about Will Smith was stepping away from Gar- from Suicide Squad. And I think that this trailer is, of course, kind of the the first tease of what this movie is really going to be. For me, it's so it's so disconcerting to see Fresh Pence of Bel Air, uh, Will Smith as this assassin trying to hunt down present day Will Smith, and, and it'll be really interesting to see what this movie does. I wonder how much they gave away with this trailer. It, it did seem to tell a lot, but uh, it also just could be the way that it, it appeared, and there maybe there is a, a second half of this movie that we don't know about yet. That's going to be a little bit more interesting and, and go a different direction with the plot. But for me, I'm excited about it. You know, I, I want to see Will Smith be successful again. And I think it's going to be in this type of movie, not in a superhero movie, where we're going to see that, it, you know, it's going to be a type of movie, something like an iRobot or an I Am Legend or Enemy of the State. It's going to be movies like that where I think I'm going to enjoy Will Smith more than something like Suicide Squad, even if I can't appreciate, you know, what he was able to do with the very limited resources in Suicide Squad. Uh, so I'm hoping that this is that. And, and if, you know, if you had to pick a director to craft a story for Will Smith to fit into in this type of role, I, you know, I'd put my faith in Ang Lee. So I, I think he's delivered on many occasions in the past. I'm a big fan. I hope he delivers on this one. Yeah, I agree. Scott, another trailer uh, that we got this week is the final trailer for a movie that doesn't have me quite as excited as Gemini Man, and that is Godzilla, King of the Monsters. You know, I, I'm not caught up to date on this universe. You know, the, we had the first Godzilla and also Kong Skull Island, which are both part of this universe, I think. Not a huge monster movie fan. Uh, are you, uh, do you have any sort of level ex- of excitement about this? Honestly, Scott, the more I see this movie, the less excited I get. Not because I think it looks bad. The trailers have all been so different. You're, like, you're seeing the same footage it feels like, but with completely different tones in every trailer that I'm like, I no longer have any idea who this movie is for. Like the most recent trailer, this last trailer that just drops to talk about it specifically, it has some like operatic score behind it for it. And I'm just like, what is this movie doing? And I'm, I'm interested to see what it actually ends up being like in the theater. Cause I probably will go and see it. I don't think we're going to talk about it on the podcast. We might at least, I, and I say that I'm sure we'll talk about in a in one of our review roundup podcasts if I do see it. But I just don't know what this movie is going to be like, and I'm not sure it's going to work. I'm just really I'm worried. I'm worried about it. Yeah, monster movies for me tend to devolve into a lot of just big CGI things punching each other, which does nothing for me, <laughs> given my you know. Ten- tendency to gravitate towards the uh, superhero and, and movies stuff that have more uh, human elements in them. This doesn't exactly seem like that kind of movie. However, it does have Kyle Chandler in it. Who's, 
probably the only thing that could get me to see this movie. Final trailer, though, however, Scott, will end on a high note. Uh, 21 Bridges. This is a new crime thriller uh, produced by the Russo brothers uh, that we got the first trailer for this week, starring Chadwick Boseman, uh, J.K. Simmons, Taylor Kitsch, Sienna Miller, Keith David, Stephen James. Really good cast. Scott, you said to me that you think this is going to be this year's Widows. Do you stand by that? I am standing by that. I think that this showed before Endgame, which is going to do it a favor, I think. And, and obviously not surprised by that as it's the, you know produced by the Russo brothers and starring Chadwick Bosman. Yeah. And I, you know, I was, I only meant, I only arrived early enough to see it once before infinite, before Endgame. But when I, when I was there and I was listening to people's conversations next to me, when this showed that, I mean, people sounded interested in it. So I think it did do some favor showing before Endgame. And I think this movie's going to be good. I, you know, I trust, uh, Chadwick Boseman. I, right, who's directing this? I'm I'm blanking right now. Yeah, well, so that was going to be my comment that the director is a guy named Brian Kirk, who's typically done TV work. Uh, this might even be his feature debut, which I think maybe will be could be the thing that distinguishes it from Widows, because I think yep. the great things about Widows was, uh, you know, he had Steve McQueen, a very stylish director behind the the camera. But I, I definitely see in terms of the plot and the splashy cast. Uh, the similarities that you're drawing on. Yeah. And I think it's, it's going to be really compelling. I mean, I know the, the, one of the things that, that caught my eye in particular is of course, I mean, Chadwick Bosman lead role. I think, it, you know, I, I know, I think, and I think you have your hesitations about him. I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. There. No, you're, you're but, right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. But I, I love uh, Stephen or Stefan James. I don't know how, to, I don't know which way he pronounces his name, uh, but yeah, I loved him. And if Bill street could talk and I'm really, really interested to see what we're going to get from him in this role in a supporting role in this movie, you know, similar to what we got from maybe like a Daniel Kaluuya last year. Or I think that this could be that sleeper hit of the year. Yes. It doesn't have the big name writer director behind it, but with the Russo brothers producing, of course, all their attention has been on Endgame. Now, of course it can switch over to this project, but I, I have a level of faith uh, in it especially with the cast that it has and, and the seemingly the story it has as well, that it could be really good. Of course, it, it could end up being a total hot mess and a disaster. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But this first trailer is promising. I like the I like the concept. I like the idea. And now I just hope the execution is good. Yeah, I'm with you. And, you know, the only thing that perhaps give me gives me a little bit of pause in addition to Brian Kirk being the director is that, you know, this movie is coming out in July and this is the first that anyone has really heard about it which you know is kind of a quick turnover from when you have your first trailer to when the movie actually comes out which you know is maybe a, a tad concerning but uh ultimately I think I definitely come down on your side that I'm I'm going to be excited to see this and hopefully it can live up to the very high bar set by Widows last year in terms of contemporary crime thriller with a you know star-studded cast yeah and clearly they're teasing a twist in it too just like yeah. Widows had so we'll see All right. Well, Scott, I think that should just about do it for our uh, packed episode here talking about Avengers Endgame. Uh, We hope that you have enjoyed this episode. uh, And if you have and you'd like to support our podcast, uh, please check out our podcast Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you choose not to support us uh, on one of the great tiers that we have over there, uh, we would still, of course, love it if you would uh, rate, review, subscribe, do all of that sort of stuff uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your uh, podcasts. And uh, we hope that you'll be back with us for our next episode on which we we will be doing our MCU retrospective and also looking forward uh, at what 
the future has to hold for the MCU. Uh, But until then, I'm Scott Harvey for Scott Shelton. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.